in the first Corinthians as Paul deals with some of the issues in that congregation. And what we're going to, to do, actually, is enter into a marriage clinic with the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> we're going to read the first 24 verses, so please open your Bible and follow along in whatever translation you have with you today. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again, lest Satan tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of confession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, and one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the, the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, let her remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And that the husband should not send away his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, let him not send her away. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, if he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified to the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified to her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk. And thus I direct in all the churches. Was any man called already circumcised? Let him not become uncircumcised. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? Let him not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Let each man remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. For he who was called in the Lord while a slave, is the Lord's freed man. Likewise, he who was called while free is Christ's slave. You were not bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, let each man remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Well, marriage is a wonderful gift from God, our Creator. It reminds me of a story 
of a minister who was planning a wedding at the close of his Sunday morning service, which is sometimes done in smaller churches and more rural situations. As he was about to call the couple forward after the benediction, his mind went blank and he could not remember their names. And so he simply said, Will those wanting to get married please come to the front? Immediately nine single ladies, three widows, four widowers, and six single men stepped up to the front of the church. <laughs> well, they wanted to claim God's blessing. Marriage is a blessing from God. It's designed is for a lifelong monogamous relationship of love between man and woman. But it's very clear in these days of confusion that it does not involve same-gender relationships. God's design is for a lifelong commitment of love between a man and a woman. Jesus talked a lot about marriage, but he leaves to the Apostle Paul and other spirit-directed writers, the practical application of the theology of marriage. Now, it may be helpful to get a cultural glimpse, at least, of what was happening in the Roman Empire in the mid-first century A.D. In the first place, there was a high divorce rate among the Romans. Homosexuality was very prevalent in their culture. There was widespread use of concubines. And there was a growing feminist rebellion. It sounds a little bit like our own culture, doesn't it? Now, Paul is writing to Christians who are living in that kind of a culture. Now, because of what he writes, he is sometimes accused of being an ascetic or as against marriage. I have read that Paul hated women. I have read also that Paul contradicted Jesus in what he wrote here. None of that is true. It is true that Paul favored celibacy, but he also encouraged marriage, as we will see. Now you notice in what verse 1 says that Paul is answering specific questions that had been posed to him by the Corinthians. He does not give us the questions. He only gives us the answers. And so what we need to do is to go to his answers and try to reconstruct the questions. Okay? That's how we're going to approach the text this morning. We're going to go to what Paul says in his response, and out of that attempt to reconstruct the question that Paul was answering. It is as though, as we come to this chapter, the Apostle Paul sits down with us to teach us in a seminar or a clinic regarding marriage issues. We're going to see that some of the issues that Paul was dealing with are the very same issues as we come to the end of the 20th century. Now the bottom line in this, this message, is that God's revelation must govern our marriage decisions. God's revelation must govern our marriage decisions. Not what we hear on radio talk shows, not what we pick up from columns in newspapers, not what the advice is from friends who don't know Christ. What must govern our marriage decisions is what God says about it. And from that, 
I want to go on to say this, that obedience then brings God's blessing. And disobedience brings self-destruction. When God tells us to do something, it's for our own good. When we choose to obey God, it results in the natural blessings that come to us as a result. And when we choose to disobey what God says, then we're actually putting ourselves on a road to self-destruction. It is very, very serious. The choice is critical. Well, now let's try to think of the questions that Paul was probably answering as, as he wrote these words. The first question that, that seems to be in Paul's mind is this one. Is it wrong not to be married? Is it wrong not to be married? The Jewish rabbis of that date, many of them taught that it was, in fact, sinful not to marry. Out of that thinking, Paul may be answering this question arising in the Corinthian church. Paul says in the first place regarding this question that it is good not to engage in marriage. In verse 1, the word touch does not mean to physically embrace or just to touch a person. It is a euphemism for the intimacies of the marriage relationship. This is seen throughout the, the Old Testament that touching in this kind of a context refers to the sexual intimacies of marriage. What Paul is saying here, it is good not to enter into that kind of a relationship. It is good. In fact, he exhorts them to follow his own example of celibacy in verse 8. Paul is saying here that as a general principle in light of the, quote, present distress, as he calls it in verse 26, the circumstances of the day, it might in fact be better not to marry or to give your daughter in marriage, as he says in verse 38. Now, having said that, we need to note that Paul does not say that singleness is the only good, nor does he say that it's bad to be married. He simply says it is good, it is a good, to be celibate. And in doing so, he shows us that singleness is not only acceptable, but it is a good to be appreciated. It is to be considered as honorable as marriage. He implies that it is a gift given by God to some. But if you don't have that gift, celibacy can be terribly frustrating. And so the Apostle says, secondly, that to avoid sexual sin, it is better to marry. Singleness is good, but it fosters sexual temptation, as he suggests in verses 2 and 9. Now, in writing what he does here, Paul assumes monogamy. He talks about his own, her own. It is a relationship between one man and one woman. And he also makes it very clear that sex outside of that kind of a marriage is not permitted by God. It is sinful. Sex outside of the commitment and the love of a man-woman marriage is out of bounds. 
And it not only incurs God's judgment, it brings self-destruction as well. So Paul's counsel here in light of this question, is it wrong not to be married, says, well, it's in fact good not to engage in marriage. But you have to have the gift for it. If you don't have the gift, it can be frustrating. So to avoid sexual sin, it is better to marry. But he says, if you have the gift for being single, use it. Use it. Now there's a second question that comes to mind as we continue on in our reading in these early verses of the chapter, and it's this. Should Christian couples separate? Paul's principle is no. No, they should not separate. If they are married, they are to be married. They should not separate. Christian couples, like all couples, need to be aware of people, of things, of circumstances, of attitudes that tend to create division and separation in a marriage. One man said to his friend, My wife says if I don't quit playing golf, she's going to leave me. His friend said, well, man, that's too bad. And he replied and said, yep, I'm sure going to miss her. Golf, could be fishing. Now that it's a week after Oprah, I can get away with that. We need to be aware of those things that tend to separate us because it is God's will for us not to separate. In this context, Paul says several things that that build on it. He says in the first place in verses 3 and 4 that each spouse, in fact, has a duty to the others. Has a duty. So that includes things like courtesy, manners, being kind. Oliver Wendell Holmes said that the nearer you come in relation with a person, the more necessary do tact and courtesy become. It is an observable but sad fact that too often, once we become married, we forget the courtesies and the manners and the words and the expressions of love that were part of dating and courtship. We have that kind of a duty to one another, but in the context here, Paul is thinking about more than that. He's thinking about the intimacy of marriage. The obligation that comes to the husband and to the wife with regard to sexual fulfillment. And he says that each has authority over the other. That means that each has an exclusive claim on the other. And therefore married couples are not to separate. And we're to be aware of those things, those attitudes, those circumstances that bring separation and threaten that oneness. In verse 5, he says something further. He says, neither spouse should deprive the other. There is the right of intimacy that comes with the commitment of marriage. And neither spouse should use that relationship of intimacy as a weapon against the other. It is never to be used to punish. 
It is never to be used to get even. It is never to be used to teach him or to teach her a lesson. There is a right of intimacy that comes with the commitment of marriage. Now, Paul does make an exception. He says you may separate, but only by mutual consent, where you both agree to it, obviously, for a limited time and for a well-defined spiritual purpose. He mentions prayer. And once that has been fulfilled, quickly come together again, resume your normal relationship. He says that anything else can lead to sin. It can leave you and or your spouse open to temptation. And so, neither spouse should deprive the other. Now, Paul says, this is not my command that I'm giving you. It is my allowance. And then in verses 10 and 11, he goes on with another thought. He says, both spouses are to stay with one another. He says, to the married, I give instructions, not I, but the Lord. What he means by this is that Jesus referred to this. Later you notice he says, it is I saying this and not the Lord. He is not saying that this is not important because Jesus didn't say it. He is saying Jesus didn't talk about this. But I am going to talk about it, and he is saying that what I say to you is of equal weight and authority with what Jesus would say. That's his point. Now he says, the wife should not leave her husband, and the husband should not send his wife away. That is God's plan. That is God's ideal, that there be no separation. But notice the, the parenthesis at the beginning of verse 11. If she does leave. You see, the Apostle Paul was living in a fallen world as we are. And he recognizes that there are situations where this is going to happen even though God's perfect will is that Christian couples not separate. He doesn't necessarily say that it's even sinful. It may be. And it may not be. But because of the fallenness of the world and the fallenness that still remains in us as believers, he recognizes the reality that sometimes it happens. And he says when it does, there is no remarriage. So let no one think that Paul provides here an open, happy door for Christian couples to separate. This is a very hard thing. And he says, if there is something that is so grievous that separation happens, then there is to be no remarriage on the part of either spouse that is outside of God's will. Now they may reconcile, they may come back together, the two of them. But other than that, they are committing themselves to a future life of total celibacy. Now what is it that generates separation? Why does Paul even need to address this? Well, as I said, it's because of the kind of world that we live in. It's because of the kind of people we, we are. What is it that generates separation? So often it's the little things. 
And because they aren't dealt with over a period of time, they really tear up a relationship. I was in a hardware store recently looking around. If you men have a hard time understanding why your wives can go to a mall and shop for three hours and come home without anything, God be praised when that happens, right? But she can go and look around the store and just be content looking. And you don't like to go because you get frustrated. Just think what you're like in a hardware store. I go into a hardware store, go up and down the aisles. I just like to see what's on sale and what this gadget is and what that's about. Don't you do that? Well, recently I was in there and I saw this contraption. It had sharp spikes in it and it was spring-loaded. And it was a mole trap. A mole trap. I was fascinated by this thing. Have you ever had a problem with moles? I mean, in the yard. I got a couple of my back, too, but I... I'm talking about the other kind of mole. Well, I've tried poison peanuts. You know those little peanuts that are blue? And you, you put them down in the hole, which absolutely guarantees that mole will never come that direction again. You can count on it. When you put a peanut in there, that runway is done. The mole will never come and eat those peanuts and die. You can get a spade and stand out there and wait for the, uh, the mole to come around and you can see him moving through the tunnel, but you'll probably be on social security before you ever kill all of them. So you get these traps. But you know there's really a simpler way than a trap even? All you have to do is to get some chemical and go out into the yard and poison the grub worm. Because that's why the moles are there. They, want the, they don't care about your lawn. They don't care about you. All they want are the grub worms. And so if you kill the grub worms, you get rid of the mole. And you know what our marriage is? It's the grub worms. Those little things that just irritate and aren't dealt with over a period of time that bring the bigger problems that begin to undermine the relationship. What are the grub worms? that are working away in your relationship today. Paul says, Christian couples are not to separate. Now there's a third question that arises as we continue on in the text. It is this, should a Christian leave an unsaved spouse? <clears throat> the problem that is in Paul's mind apparently, having been asked this question by the Corinthians is, does living with a non-Christian defile a believer? And Paul's response is, absolutely not, essentially, in verses 12 and 13. Now, the question may have arisen out of ancient Israel's laws and practices, such as in the book of Ezra, when the pagan wives were to be put away. And so the Christians in Corinth now were asking the question, well, I'm married to a pagan, should I put the pagan away? And so Paul responds, saying, no, that is not the case. In verse 14, he, he talks about what we might call matrimonial sanctification. He says the unbeliever is set apart by the believer. So that the, the children that are produced in this union are holy and not unclean. The marriage is not unholy. It is not unclean. 
He says the unbeliever, in fact, is sanctified. Now, that doesn't mean the unbeliever is automatically saved by being married to the, the Christian. It does not even guarantee that this person will be saved, but it, it suggests that there's a spillover effect of God's blessing in the life of the Christian which that unbelieving spouse partakes in. They are under the blessing of God and they enjoy that and the, 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 the hope is, and maybe even the tendency is, that by the godly living of the Christian, the unsaved spouse will come to Christ. Verse 16. I could give you anecdotes about that. One is of a converted Hindu woman who suffered a great deal at the hands of her non-Christian relatives. So a missionary asked her one day, when your husband's angry and persecutes you, what do you do? And her response was, I just cook the food better and I sweep the floor cleaner. And when he's unkind with me, I answer him mildly and I try to show him in every way that when I became a Christian, I became a better wife. And the missionary who had that encounter tells us that over a period of time, the Holy Spirit used that godly woman to bring her Hindu husband to the Savior. It's not easy. But Paul says don't separate, but there's a note of clarification. What if the unsaved one initiates the divorce? Verse 15. What if that pagan spouse says, look, you're not the one I married, I'm getting out of here. What's a Christian to do? And Paul says the Christian is not under bondage in those kinds of cases. In the context of the chapter, that seems very clearly to me, not under bondage to the marriage vows, to the marriage union. Let him go, says Paul. You're called to peace. You're called to peace. And so this seems to allow for the dissolution of a marriage on the grounds of desertion in a case where an unbeliever becomes a believer and now there is a mixed marriage. Now, it's not talking about where a believer disobediently marries an unbeliever. He is talking about where two people who are unsaved find themselves in a situation where now they are mixed. And one has become a Christian and one steadfastly refuses it and says, I'm out of here, I don't want to be married, to a Christian. And Paul says, let him go, let her go. There seems to be a second biblical allowance for divorce, along with adultery. Allowance, I say, not command. It is permitted. And by the way, the reason that God permits it is so the one who is left, the innocent one, is able to remarry in the Lord. Where there is a biblical allowance for it, there is the inherent right for the remarriage. Now I know that this kind of thing brings up all sorts of questions uh, and it's impossible to answer them in the context of this chapter or in the time we have this morning, but let me say that the elders of this church have hammered out a statement regarding marriage and divorce and you are welcome to ask for a copy of that at the church office and we'll send it to you. 
Let me leave that and go on to the final question, which is now found beginning in verse 17. Uh, a question that rather provides a context for all that Paul says in this chapter. The question might be put this way. Paul, should a Christian agitate to change his status after conversion? Should he feel pressure to change his status, be it social status, economic status, ethnic status, political status, whatever? The married questions that Paul has been dealing with is here tied to and placed under another general principle that we see here. Paul is saying that a believer should remain as God has called him. That's the, the idea. And in the context of the larger chapter, we would say it this way then. If a believer is married to an unsaved, then that person should remain in that relationship. Or I think we can also say if there has been a wrong divorce in the past and now there's a remarriage, do not break the second marriage to return to the first. It only compounds the problem. Paul says, if you're a Gentile, remain a Gentile. If you're called as a Jew, remain a Jew. If you've been called into Christ as a slave, remain a slave. However, he says, if you can be freed, be freed, but use that freedom for the Lord. The principle here is to abide in the calling in which you were saved. It might be called the principle of the status quo. He's saying the most important thing is not whether you're slave or free or Gentile or Jew or married or divorced or single. He says the most important thing about you is your spiritual position, that you are in Christ, that you are in God. And he says, coupled with that, needs to be a desire in your heart to keep God's moral commandments, verse 19. And so if we're going to summarize this principle, it would be this. Trust your circumstances to God's providence and seek to obey Him. That's what Paul is saying. Whatever the issue may be in your life, and it may have nothing to do with marriage, he says, trust the circumstances of your life to a God who is bigger than all of your situations. And God who in his providence, which is wise and loving, arranges your circumstances. Trust him with your circumstances and seek to obey his moral commandments. Now I think you can see from this chapter that the word of God directs us counter to much of the present wisdom of the world. You're not going to hear this kind of stuff on talk radio programs, on these syndicated television programs that are out of the pit. They bring every perverse thing before audiences who applaud like little idiots. You're not going to hear this kind of thing there. Because all of that, most of that, let me back up. Most of that is worldly wisdom. You can go out to your friend who doesn't know Christ, or maybe even a Christian friend who does know the Lord but is not walking with God, and you can get advice that will be counter to what God says. And I could name you this morning enough marriages that I know of from this church to put on one hand at least 
where one spouse or the other has gone out and gotten bad advice from people who are supposed to be Christians and followed that and ruined their marriage. Because they did not listen to the Word of God. Even Christian friends can give you ungodly counsel. So my point this morning at the beginning was that we need to understand that God's revelation should govern our marriage relationship. When we obey it, we're blessed. When we disobey it, we self-destruct. God is not trying to be mean in what he tells us. He's not trying to make us miserable. God simply knows more than we do. And he says, if you will do this, you will have blessings. But if you don't do that, then you will experience self-destruction. The choice is ours. A number of years ago, there was a ship that went down on the Irish coast. Everyone was puzzled as to why the ship would have gone down, <clears throat> hit the rocks. And so they sent divers down to recover bits of it, and one of the things they brought back from the depths was the compass of the ship. And they opened it and examined it, and they found that down inside the compass was the tip of a knife. Apparently, one of the seamen had been cleaning the compass and inadvertently broke off the, the tip of his knife and it remained lodged down in the compass. And he didn't think anything about it, but the problem was that the tip of the knife just put the compass off enough that in the fog, the ship went on the rocks. I don't know what it may be down in the compass of your life today that threatens you. I don't know what it may be where you have refused God, you've made the wrong choice. But I can tell you that unless you face that and deal with it and confess it before God and come back to obey the Lord, you're going to hit the rocks. Your marriage is going to hit the rocks. Your future is going to hit the rocks. Obedience brings blessing. But when we choose to disobey, it puts us on the wrong course and we end up in self-destruction. But what better time is there today than to do business with God and to get the compass cleaned up so that it's leading us in the right direction, in the direction of God's blessing. Let's pray together. Because you search your own heart about this, what is it? What is it that is the tip of the knife blade that's broken off down in there? What choice? is leading you toward destruction. Whatever that is, I believe that God is reminding you of it right now. And I plead with you, in the name of Christ, bring your life under the governance of his word for your sake. Because if you will obey what God says, my friend, you will know blessings. But if you choose to disobey, destruction is surely ahead. I plead with you.
bring that attitude, bring that lack of forgiveness, bring that spirit that quenches the Lord, bring that behavior, that secret thing that maybe nobody else knows about, that sin that you're playing with, bring it to the Lord and avoid the rock. Will you do that right now? Tell him so. Lord, I thank you that you are a faithful God who in love gives us instructions. And I pray that all of us will be able to leave here today truly trusting you as the God who providentially has arranged our circumstances. And with hearts that are seeking to obey you in your moral commandments, God, I pray that we will leave here moving in the direction of blessing and not trouble. In Jesus' name, amen.